Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. For the first time in more than six decades, Cuban citizens are protesting in the streets against their communist government regime. In this episode, Dan Huger, librarian and research associate here at the Acton Institute, sits down with Cuban priest Father Alberto Reyes to discuss the horrors of communism in Cuba, the revolution, and how Christians should respond to it. As a quick note, in this interview, Father Reyes speaks in his native tongue, Spanish, and we have translated his answers to English. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act Online on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Online is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Father Alberto Reyes. Father Reyes teaches at San Agustin Seminary in Camagüey, Cuba, and also serves as a parish priest in Esmeralda. He studied humanities and philosophy at the seminaries San Basilio Magno in Santiago de Cuba and San Carlos in San Ambrosio in Havana. For his theological studies, he was sent to Rome to the Regina Apostolorum. He is the author of Do My Will, A History of the Resistance, a book which tells the story of his own vocational journey and is a meditation on how to find meaning in one's own life. Today, we'll have a wide-ranging conversation about Father Reyes' own fascinating life and the present state of the church, state, and culture in Cuba. It will be a conversation about contemporary challenges and how they can be met with faith, hope, and love. Father Reyes, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Acton Line. Thank you. Father Reyes, can you share with us a little bit of your own life's journey, your, your upbringing, your intellectual development, and, and your vocation? Okay. Um, I was born in a very Christian family, a family that lived what it said. I saw that what my parents said, they also lived it. I also had the blessing of having a very lively Christian community with priests who were very close and who also lived what they said. My childhood took place in the years when there was a great religious persecution, and therefore my parents taught me and my sisters to grow up fighting for our faith each day. We had to defend our faith. There's a little story that, for me, it's a key in my life, and it's when I was about eight years old. I began the school year that I was supposed to begin that year, and I had a teacher there who didn't know me, and I didn't know her. One day, in the classroom, I said something, I don't remember what, and she looked at me, and she said to me, are you religious? And I told her, yes, but don't tell anybody. And obviously, I felt very bad. When I got home, I found my mother and told her what happened. And my mother, who's a very, very joyful woman, became serious. She looked me in the eyes, and she told me, I'm going to tell you something. If you want to keep going to church, you have to be ready to die. Otherwise, you can't go anymore. 
And I think that that was the beginning of my personal faith. That was the day that I promised that nothing and nobody would ever make me doubt my faith. And that's the way I grew up, fighting for my faith each day. I never thought of being a priest until I was 18. I was finishing my high school, and I had never thought of being a priest. I wanted to be a doctor. I had been admitted to the university. I had a girlfriend. My life was all planned. I was going to be a doctor. A doctor, a surgeon, a cardiovascular surgeon. I would get married. I would have four or five kids. But one moment, this thought came to me, this thought that there was something more, this desire for something more. In my spirit, I intuited that there could be a call to the priesthood, and I turned against God. Why me? Why now? Why me? Why now? And there I began in a very deep crisis, but it lasted many years. I tell about it in my book. Until, well, God won. Many years later, God won. And now I've been a priest for almost 25 years. And here I am, and here I hope to continue. Thank you so much for sharing that powerful witness. Um, most people in the United States really have no idea the sort of situation of daily life that the Cuban people are in. And you've been now for some weeks in the United States and, and you've lived uh, in other countries. What are the greatest differences you notice between life in these other countries and the United States in particular and life in Cuba? La diferencia mayor. The greatest difference that touches my soul is hope. Freedom allows us to dream. It allows us to have hope. It allows us to look at life with optimism. In Cuba, one doesn't live. In Cuba, one simply survives. And many times, one survives without hope. I think that Cubans' great challenge is to keep hope alive, the hope that life can be different. When I look at other countries, when I look at the United States, obviously, I understand that paradise is not in this world, that here there are also problems, here there are difficulties, here there are sufferings. But what of it? Here there is freedom, and when there is freedom, one can fight, one can dream. One can dream and one can pursue one's dreams. Cuba is a country where many people have been born and have died without even being able to hope. Therefore, for me, that's the most important thing, the possibility of life that allows freedom. And that's what we don't have today in Cuba. Thank you for that very stark um, division. Now, you've been in Grand Rapids for a little bit, which is a very particular corner of the United States. And... We're very unique in a, in a number of ways. What have, what have your impressions of the city been as, as you visited uh, with us here in Grand Rapids? It's a very beautiful corner. <laughs> it's a very beautiful corner. <laughs> it's a lovely corner of the state. <laughs> I've loved it. I've loved it. 
Hmm, let's see. I've loved the city, the buildings, nature, how clean the city is. I've loved it. It's what you call a lovely place. But I've loved the people, the number of families with many children. I've loved that. Yesterday, I was at a concert, and what I want to say is it was full of families, mother, father, children, and those families weren't afraid to have three or four kids. I really liked it. I loved it, because I saw them, and I said, here there's a future, here there's a future. And to see that, to see that deep sense of family, that's what makes society healthy. To see their charity, and I understand that here there have to be problems, just like anywhere in the world. And I repeat, paradise is not of this world. But what I've seen in these days, that is to say, that charitable dealing with one another, their attention to each other, caring for their children, This is a nation with a future, and this is perhaps what most touched my soul in Grand Rapids. Well, that, that's very touching to me. I, I was born and raised in this city, and I'm, I'm always interested in other people's perspectives from around the country and around the world and what stands out to them, and that is a very beautiful tribute. Thank you. In, in talking with people from the United States, what are the impressions that you notice that they have Of, of your own country and of, and of the Communist Party's rule in Cuba in particular? Okay, I've found two attitudes. There are people who are very clear, people who were born in the United States, people who have grown up in the United States, but people who have taught themselves, who have spoken with Cubans, People who are very clear that Cuba is a dictatorship, that Cuba is a people that suffers. Nevertheless, there are many people in the United States who have drunk the myth, because there is a myth of happy Cuba, a just Cuba, a Cuba of solidarity. Communism lives on its image. Lenin used to say that the city is burning, but nobody sees the flames. Therefore, communism does all it can and sometimes more than it can, to burnish its image. And that works. Unfortunately, it's worked with many people in this country who think that Cuba is a paradise, and they think that Cuba is the example that the world must follow. There are people who perhaps have gone to Cuba and were guided there, like on a tour, so that they see the beautiful part of my country. And there is a lot of that. Or maybe there are people who have gone to Cuba and haven't left their hotel. And if you go to a nice beach in Cuba and don't go out of your hotel, Cuba is a paradise. But when you talk with the people, when you visit the people, you understand all the anguish and despair that many people live each day. Then I notice the number of people in this country who idolize Cuba. And they give an image of Cuba that's the same as the image that the official information wing of the state gives. And it's totally, totally false. In Cuba, there is a terrible lack of freedom. There is repression, terrible repression against anyone who expresses an opinion different from the official one. And in Cuba, there are immense basic needs. Food is a problem. Transportation isn't just a problem. It's a hell. Clothing is a problem. And medicines, for example, are another hell. In Cuba, often, there's not even an aspirin for a headache. The people live in continual anguish. 
But I repeat, there is a myth of this happy Cuba, a Cuba of solidarity, a just Cuba, and it's a myth, a theory, and I notice that. How many people there are that have drunk that myth and they popularize it or repeat it, when in reality, it's not the truth. And I don't want to be disrespectful, but to those people in the United States who think that Cuba is a paradise, I would tell them two things. First, go and stay with the normal people. But I would also say to those who think this, and again, I don't want to be disrespectful, but keep in mind a phrase that was born within communism itself, that of useful fools. Useful fools, a person who has drunk the propaganda and repeats it and is therefore a fool. But it works for my goals. That I don't want to be disrespectful to anybody, but they have to think of that a little bit. Absolutely. The human person and people need to be at the center of what we think about and what we bring our attention to. And what one of the things in those in those two stark differences you pointed out, those two attitudes. One of the things that, that, that neither, neither the, the propaganda regurgitated by the useful idiots or the folks that are very aware of how repressive the Cuban regime is, one thing that neither of those touches on is the religious life of the Cuban people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Cuba, while not as religiously diverse as the United States, is, is, is increasingly becoming so. Um, we have a common friend, uh, Pastor Mario, who has attended several Acton programs, who is of a, of a Protestant background. Do, do Christians of different denominations cooperate or collaborate with each other in Cuba? And is any church uh, closer to the state in Cuba? What, what are the, what are, is there a difference between how the Communist Party relates to those different religious traditions in Cuba? In Cuba, there have been times in which there's been a lot of conflict between the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, but throughout history, we have been getting closer together, first from a point of view of the Christian sentiment that we're brothers in faith, but lately, the political situation has made us get even closer together, closing ranks on topics such as the rejection of abortion, the rejection of the imposition of gender ideology. I believe in freedom, and I don't support gender ideology, but I understand that there could be persons who want their children educated in gender ideology, in the postulates of gender ideology. But in Cuba, for example, Some weeks ago, there was a resolution of the government that in schools, which are only of the government, they would establish the postulates of gender ideology for everyone, whether you want it or not, whether you are in agreement or not. And there, Catholics and non-Catholics, we united, saying that we want freedom of choice. If somebody wants to be educated in gender ideology, let him be. But if anyone doesn't want their children to be educated in gender ideology, they have to have the right to another choice. And in this, for example, Catholics and Protestants have united in that petition for freedom of choice. And now as well with the protests and the whole cry for freedom from the Cuban people. We are also working very closely together because we're united by that common sentiment of freedom for our land. In Cuba, there's something that's called the Council of Churches. There are a number of Protestant denominations that answer to the government, and some denominations 
have even been leaving it. They have been separating themselves from it because they realize that they're just a propaganda arm for the regime's ideology. Thus, what we call the Council of Churches are Protestant churches that answer to the government. But, I repeat, many of them lately have publicly declared that they are separating themselves from it because they no longer want to belong to that organization. Now, in general, Protestant churches and Catholics feel more united. We feel more united because we realize that beyond the differences of vision that we can have, there are many other things that unite us, and we are all joining forces. So there's been this this common struggle for freedom has brought the churches closer together and has driven many churches away from the government and, mm-hmm. and from cooperation. Mm-hmm. Now, as a priest who who provides spiritual guidance, I'm sure you get all sorts of questions from parishioners, from lay people about ethical questions. Some of these are economic, like uh, in a regime like Cuba – how to think about working in in a black market or informal economy that's sort of outside of the law. Those who you know have questions about you know working for the for the state in in positions that you know might might provide aid to the regime or 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 issues of corruption such as paying and receiving bribes. How do you negotiate those complex pastoral realities um, that people in Cuba face? In our role as spiritual guides for the people, this is a topic that we very much have to awaken in the people, because people in reality generally don't pose these situations as a problem. The situation in Cuba is so desperate that people have to survive. And moreover, in Cuba there is another situation that worsens this and even touches on the church. And that's that in Cuba, in order to live, it's practically impossible not to fall into illegality. That is to say, there are certain things and needs that, in order to resolve them, we have to do something illegal. So, it's a very complicated topic, because, of course, it's a desperate situation in which someone who wants to find food or clothing or other needs often has to do something illegal. And we would say, I don't know if sometimes we would talk about sin because the situation doesn't give us any options, but we have to know that it's a very complicated topic, very complicated. And sometimes we can't even ask the people to live ethically in a way that, let's say, is totally correct. Why? Because then they would have nothing to eat. Yes, it's a very, very difficult situation. We're trying to help someone to think of choosing the good, the greatest possible good, within what's possible. And sometimes, that's the most that we can hope for. It's not choosing the greatest good among your possibilities, but it's a very complicated topic, and many times people say, Father, it's that I have no other option, and it's a very difficult topic, and it gets even worse because also in Cuba, for generations, there's been no systematic formation of values. So this makes many people not even pose the simple, basic question of what is good and what is evil, but what can ease my life and what won't? What consequences can this bring for me? And what consequences will it not? And sometimes, for example, there are people who don't do certain things not because they're evil, 
but because they could bring certain problems that they don't want. But that question, is it good or is it evil, that's not a common question among normal people in Cuba, because we haven't grown up with an insistence on looking at values. And this, for me, is the greatest challenge in the reconstruction of Cuba, to help the Cuban people to recover that moral sense of good and evil. It's, it strikes me at, at the Acton Institute, we talk a lot about the relationship with freedom and responsibility and how freedom is, is in some sense a necessary precondition of responsibility. And when you lack that freedom to make those choices and to form yourself into good habits, it, it becomes an extremely difficult situation. Now, in Cuba, there are, there are foreign visitors and tourists from many parts of the world. Have they visited your church and your congregation? From, from what sort of countries do they come from? And what are their impressions of, of, of the parish life there and of religious life in Cuba in general? The people that are most often welcomed in my parish come from Spain and from Italy. The first thing that falls for them is the myth of a fabulous Cuba with no problems. They realize what the people's reality is. And in the end, what I see in them is a very great desire to help as far as they can. They remain very connected with Cuba, but... We could also say that they fall in love with something very beautiful that Cuba has. And this is that, in the first place, the Cuban people opens their heart to you. They invite you to their house. They welcome you. They welcome you. One time someone said to me, I think that since we have nothing to give, we give ourselves. And I think that's true. And it's true that the Cuban people give themselves. The Cuban people do the impossible so that the other person can feel good. Because the time that you're going to spend in Cuba, you're going to spend it as if you were at home. And that really touches me. Because the Cuban people is kind, open, welcoming, welcoming. And on the other hand, it's certainly true that the Cuban church is also a very welcoming church, a church that's very alive and very life-giving, very life-giving. Our celebrations are very life-giving, very relaxed, very flavorful. The faith that's lived is a very close faith. There's a great closeness with parish priests, nuns, even with bishops. It is a people's church a people's church. And this makes people enjoy the celebrations, the masses, the meetings, because it's a church that is very close to the life of the people. I think that those two things really touch those who come to visit, besides the fact that the island is very beautiful, and we obviously try to make those that come see the beaches, to see everything beautiful that our island has. I think that that close relation of the Cuban people and that flavorful relationship with the church, those certainly touch the soul of people who come to visit us. That is, that is a wonderful witness of the community as a whole and a wonderful gift. Um, the, the gift of self is the greatest gift. Now, beginning in July, there have been widespread protests in Cuba against, against the, the, the regime and the ruling Communist Party. What are those issues that are motivating everyday people to, 
to come out and protest. We talked about a lot of that everyday struggle. Were there any particular issues associated with these protests? I think that at root, it's that people are tired of 62 years of dictatorship, of oppression, of fear. The Cuban people are afraid. They're afraid to say what they think. And I think that the people finally got tired of so much oppression, and that has helped them. And it's true that COVID has helped as well, because COVID has thrown into relief the myth of Cuban public health, which is a disaster, because there is this idea that we're a world power in medicine. Is it really true? It's a myth. It's a lie. And that's what has been thrown into relief now. Many people have died from COVID. Among the population, many people have died. And Cuba doesn't have a health system that's able to face that. And so, yes, the whole tragedy of COVID has helped. And on the other hand, there's the precariousness of the economic situation, the rise in the cost of living. The costs of life have gone way up. And the government, I don't know the official totals, but what they say is that the government raised salaries by 5% and then raised prices by 20%. And thus what the people say is that you didn't raise my salary 5%, you took away 15%. And life has gotten much more expensive. And apart from that, there's the difficulty in finding things. And another big element is the lack of medications. There are no medications. And the problem of medications is that if I have a headache, well, I can endure a headache. And if I have an infection, it's the same. I can, in some way, with some remedy, try to treat that infection so that it doesn't kill me. But if I have a child with a mental illness, if I have a schizophrenic child, what then? What do I do when a child or someone in my family needs medication for mental illness? And then the scarcity of medications is terrible. I think that all that has helped. But the root is what the people have shouted in the street. We want freedom. We want freedom. We're tired of so much oppression. We're tired of so many lies every day. We're tired of a society where people live without a future and without hope. And so I think at root, it's that we want, we want freedom. So there has been this slow building and and the coronavirus triggered a lot more immediate difficulty and people are upset, they're taking to the streets, um, they're demanding freedoms and they're, they're right in demanding those freedoms. What has been the government response in Cuba to these protests? The government's response was brutal. There's no other word for it. It has been brutal, and it still is brutal. It's terrible, because except for some acts of vandalism, which wasn't the tone of the manifestations, people throughout the entire island have been demonstrating peacefully. Even President Diaz-Canel appeared on television and said, fighting orders have been given. And from that point on, the forces of repression came out, and they were the ones that started the violence. And they attacked a defenseless people. They fired on the people. They struck against a great number of defenseless people. And they were the ones that began the escalation of violence. After that, since the government agents were filming the demonstrations, they were identifying people who participated in the protests, and they've gone house by house, always with groups of policemen, to look for those people, to put them on trial, 
and that has terrorized the population. On the other hand, they've been recruiting many young men at the age of military service to arm them with sticks. Why? So that they can oppose possible demonstrations. They are sowing terror. They are sowing terror in a terrible way, without realizing that, on the other side, they're creating many more enemies. Because there are families where maybe one member of the family is against the government, and the rest aren't. But now that person, since he went out to protest peacefully, they beat him, they imprisoned him, they've done a show trial and condemned him to prison for the simple fact that he went out into the street to say, I want freedom. And thus, now there's not one person in the family against the government. It's the whole family. And it seems that, to the government, that doesn't matter. Why are there still jailings going on? The repression is continuing, and in fact, Many of the main cities in Cuba are militarized, but responding in a violent way to the first demonstration against the government, it's been something really brutal. And that has certainly made the people very fearful, because the people know that they are defenseless. Because, in fact, when they put you on trial and condemn you, it doesn't matter if you have a defense attorney or not. You're condemned before the trial begins. Because in Cuba, there is no rule of law. Cuba is not ruled by laws. Everything is subordinated to the interests of the Communist Party. And thus, if the Communist Party that rules the country decides that they have to make examples of people and punish the people who have gone out to demonstrate, then there's no defense possible. And that's one of the great problems that we have now. And that's why there is an urgent need for international pressure, because sometimes we Cubans feel alone. It's as if the world is watching what's going to happen in Cuba as if it were a show. It's like we can watch a violent movie, and yes, we can have a certain empathy with the characters, but we're in a movie theater, and therefore we don't have to do anything. And in that way, the international community doesn't support us, and they don't call things by their name, and they don't put pressure on the Cuban government. We are going to continue suffering and dying until God knows when. This is a very stark picture of people living not only under a reign of terror, but feeling very much alone as they do so. During these challenging times for the Cuban people, what is the role of faith? And do you have any guidance to the Cuban people in how to maintain hope and grow in love when facing so much adversity and when feeling very alone? while doing so. I think that we're living on faith. It's the only thing that they haven't been able to take away from us. Sometimes they've even taken away our hope. Faith, no. Faith, no. And accompanying the people, I think that this message of faith in the sense that we're doing what God wants. We're fighting in a fight that God wants, that God is near to those who suffer that God does not abandon us, that God is our strength. Many times we read in the Psalms those phrases, God is my strength, God is my refuge. Well, this is the moment in which we're living, because we know that the reality is this moment. Our only security is God. We can't trust in the government. We can't trust, even sometimes, 
in international support. We don't know where our help is going to come from. This is a time when, often, the only thing we have is God, and the only thing in which we can have our strength and place our hope is God. And thus, it's a time of great faith, and it's also a time of refinement in love. There's something very beautiful, very beautiful, that's happening in Cuba right now, and of which many priests are witnesses. And that's that many young people come to us to say, Father, what can we do? I want to do something. But their tone is always one of nonviolence. That's something very beautiful that's happening today. We do not have witnesses of young people that say, we're going to kill them. We're going to respond with violence. We're going to arm ourselves. That talk isn't there. Their talk is, what can we do? But what can we do from the point of view of nonviolence? from the point of view of welcoming, of forgiveness. If in this moment, everybody who is attacking the people were to change their attitude, they would say, we're going to construct a different Cuba together. Their tone would be one of forgiveness and of reconciliation. I am afraid. I'm afraid that if this continues, at some point that could change and there could flourish in my land a desire for vengeance. I do have that fear. But today, the majority of young people who come to speak with the priests, their tone is, I want to do something. I want to continue in this fight, but without attacking anyone, without harming anyone. And this is what gives hope for peaceful change, which is what we all want for Cuba in this moment. That's that's a desire I firmly share. And I know many people around the world share that desire. And we have been talking very seriously about very serious issues. And you have given a passionate and beautiful witness for the people of Cuba. And a powerful witness that's cornerstone is is, is faith. But I also know you to be a man of joy and a man of humor. And what role can humor play in the struggles of everyday people as they are undergoing this? What role is there in desperate times for joy. Humor has been our refuge in all this time, in all this time. Jokes, memes, everything. It's continuous. It's continuous. I think even in the most difficult moments, we haven't stopped making jokes. Jokes about communism, some more elaborate, some less elaborate. But jokes have always been something that's helped us to survive in the midst of a situation that's often suffocating. There's a joke that I like about a Cuban dog that goes to live in New York. And there in Central Park, he meets an American dog. And the American dog says to him, do you have lunch money? Where are you going to eat? And the Cuban dog says, no, in Cuba, somebody will always give you something to eat. And in Cuba, I never felt hungry. And the American dog says, do you have health insurance? If you get sick, what's going to happen? And the Cuban dog says, no. In Cuba, when you get sick, they take you to the veterinarian and it's all free. No, I never thought of it. And the American dog says, do you have life insurance for when you die? And the Cuban dog says, no, no, because in Cuba, a family will always take in a dog. A Cuban dog never dies in the street. And the American dog says to him, well, if you had it so well in Cuba, what did you come here for? And the Cuban dog says, to bark, to bark and to bark. (laughs) (laughs) 
Esto es el modo en que nosotros vamos, vamos And that's how we continue making our days bearable each day. So, in, in conclusion, as, as we wrap up this conversation, in addition to prayer, what can the listeners of this podcast do to help those struggling under Cuba and communist rule? How can we be in solidarity with the people of Cuba in these times? Eh, a ver, me gusta mucho el enfoque de la pregunta. I really like the approach of this question. Besides praying, because prayer is the first thing, the first thing, to pray to God for Cuba. And also keep in mind something that I want to take the opportunity in this podcast to ask you. And it's to keep in mind that our greatest need as Cubans is not food, it's not medicine, it's not even freedom. Years ago, my people turned their backs on God. And when a people turns their back on God, they can't walk. St. Augustine said that when someone flees from God, everything flees from them. And we decided to flee from God and place our hope in other things, in an ideology, in another system of life. And thus it's true that the Cuban people today need freedom, food, medicine, and so on. But our first need is to turn our face back to God. And that's the first thing that I want you to pray that Cuba does, that we will be able to turn our face back to God, because that is what we need. And aside from that, I think it's important to try as far as possible to keep informed about the situation, to respond. And I understand that here people suffer as well. People in the United States have their own sufferings, their own burdens. Many times, in some sense, they're much heavier than in Cuba. But, as far as is possible, try to respond, to respond, to publicize what's happening in Cuba. And, I would say, help people understand what's happening there. And aside from that, perhaps on a more personal note, anything that can be of help to the people in this time is of course welcome. And, in this sense, this country's churches can be a good channel Medicine, above all, is so needed in this moment. In the U.S., there are many Latinos and Cubans, and churches can be the one that channel help from them. But I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. Our greatest need is to turn our face back to God. And I want to take this opportunity to offer this to everyone who's listening to me in this country. I am a simple country parish priest. I'm a simple priest of the people. But at times I see, outside of Cuba, attitudes that are very similar to how this disaster in my country began. I think there's a very adolescent attitude, which is the attitude of, it won't happen to me. Adolescents live with this attitude. It won't happen to me. Who's going to have a motorcycle accident? The other guy, not me. Who's going to get pregnant? The other, not me. Who's going to get a sexually transmitted disease? The other, not me. Adolescents always say, it won't happen to me, and for that reason, so many things happen to adolescents. Many years ago, we said, it won't happen to us. There were people who left Cuba scared in 1959. They got to the United States, and they left their suitcases packed. Why? Because this is in Cuba. Nothing's going to happen. And it happened. The Venezuelans said, it's not going to happen here. This is Venezuela. It happened in Cuba, but it's not going to happen to us. 
And today we know what the situation in Venezuela is. It's very adolescent to say, it won't happen to me. And that adolescent says here in the United States, this isn't going to happen here. There are many ways, many ways that what happened in other countries can happen in the United States. There are many ways. So pay attention. Pay attention to anything that goes against freedom, anything that goes against values, anything that goes against God. Pay attention. I repeat, I'm nobody. Who am I to say to the United States, open your eyes? But the thing is, many years ago, we said, it's not going to happen here. And it happened. So don't say, it's not going to happen to me. Don't say, the left isn't going to get through to my children. Don't be naive. Don't be naive. Why? Think, the left has gotten clever. They've gotten into the schools, universities, and they've gotten into our way of thinking. Don't say, my children will never fall away from God. My children won't leave Christian values behind. My children won't have communist ideas. Don't be naive. Don't say, it won't happen to me, because it could one day. And when it happens, there won't be anything left to do. And so pay attention, I repeat, to everything that goes against freedom, everything that goes against values, everything that goes against the good of the human being, everything that goes against God. Pay attention. It has to be stopped, because one day we could find ourselves with a very different country. And now I'd like to end first by thanking those who invited me to Grand Rapids. I want to thank the Acton Institute for all the good that I see they are doing here. I want to thank them for the kindness I've found here. I want to say thanks, and I want to ask one more time, please pray to God for my land. Pray that we Cubans may finally be able to turn our face back to God. Goodbye, and thank you very much. Thank you so much, Father Reyes, for your powerful witness, for your powerful testimony on behalf of the Cuban people, and for your admonition for vigilance for ourselves and for others around the world so that these sorts of tragedies won't needlessly repeat themselves, and that so we can all, along with the Cuban people, turn back to God. Thank you so much. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja.